from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 9th. Today, whether employers can require vaccinations, why there's vaccine hesitancy among Black people, and holiday skeletons take two. Since the start of the pandemic, I've been covering how employers have transitioned people to working from home and what the expectations are for when many will return. Jenna McGregor covers workplace issues for The Post, and she set out to answer this question. We wanted to know, can your employer require the vaccine of you as an employee? That's a question that I think so many of my friends and family have been talking about. Frankly, it's a question that I have been asking myself, like, can my employer demand that I have this vaccine? So what is the answer to that question? I wish it was simple, but the short answer is it depends. There are a lot of important caveats and exemptions, and there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Here's the deal. The vaccines that are making all the headlines, including the one from Pfizer and Moderna, are expected to be approved under what's known as an emergency use authorization rather than a full FDA approval, the typical process, which a drug is usually approved under, which can take much longer. As a result, the employment lawyers I spoke with said they're not aware of something in employment law that would keep your workplace from mandating that vaccine. But they also said the issue of whether an employer can require a vaccine that gets that rapid authorization, it just hasn't come up before. So that's a gray area. Once there is a full approval, they do expect that some employers, especially those in healthcare organizations, are going to treat it much like they've treated the flu shot. And in healthcare organizations, these are often required. So considering that gray area, then it seems like if someone goes to their employer and says, yes, you are providing me with the opportunity to take this vaccine, but I don't want to take it, I feel concerned about it, or for whatever reason, like, I'm not going to do it, then it sounds like in those cases, there's not much that employers can do to require it. Well, there's a couple of important caveats. If you work for a place that decides it wants to try to mandate the vaccine, there are two things that they have to make accommodations for, and that's pretty clear already under the law. Under the Americans with Disabilities Act, employers have to provide what's known as a reasonable accommodation to people who have a disability, who feel they couldn't take the vaccine safely. So that's one. The second is Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act says employers would need to provide a reasonable accommodation for someone who has religious objections, then those people would also have to have an accommodation in place. And then there's the issue of there could be state or local laws that could get in the way of a mandate or allow people to refuse one for other reasons. But if your employer decides it's going to put these accommodations in place, it's not an issue with states, you, you know, say work for a health care organization where it's really clear someday that you can require this, just saying, I don't want to do it, might not be enough. 
And what are you hearing from employers in terms of what their expectations or hopes are with this vaccine? Does it appear that it is going to be widespread and common that employers, you know, healthcare organizations or otherwise are going to get to a point where they're saying we want everyone who works for us to get vaccinated? It's still really early. I I really was not in a place to be able to get employers to say we're going to mandate it or we're not. They are, though, making preparations. And a lot of the preparations that we're hearing about is simply what we're talking about, asking their lawyers for advice, looking for guidance from the government on mandates, thinking through their policies, just kind of preparing for that eventual outcome. Because as we all know, we all get the flu shot often at work or through our employer. It's not necessarily mandated, but it's offered. And there is going to be a big effort to try to offer it to employees and encourage them to take it and make it available to people. And so they're preparing for that outcome. And for those businesses that are at least looking into right now what it would look like to get their whole staff vaccinated, what is the incentive of that? I mean, of course, you just want to keep the people that you work with safe. But what are the kind of business or financial opportunities there if they are able to get everyone vaccinated who works for them? Well, you could imagine anyone who has direct uh, contact with customers might have an incentive to want to make sure their employees are vaccinated. When it comes to the office environment, a lot of the legal experts I talked to suggested your run-of-the-mill professional office environment, they don't expect a lot of requirements, but they're going to really seriously encourage and even possibly incentivize people to take the vaccine in order to get people back in the office, get people feeling safe about working together. One of the preparations that's being made right now is starting to think about could we make this part of the wellness program where you get some kind of healthcare discount on your insurance or you know points towards whatever reward in your wellness program if you can show you took the covid vaccine i feel like all these questions are so important because of the way that your employer plays a role in your kind of vaccination life, if that makes sense. I mean, I'm thinking about every time that I've gotten a flu vaccine in the last 10 years. And oftentimes it's either because I was required to or because my my employer like had a flu vaccination day. And you can see when you think about how so many people in this country are sort of trepidatious about the vaccine and are on the fence about whether or not they want to take it. And that if employers are playing a more active role, then they could make a difference in how many people actually do get it. I think they could absolutely play a big role, and I think a lot of people are expecting them to. One interesting thing I heard in my reporting, I was speaking to an academic who studies health mandates and vaccine mandates, and one of the things he learned is that more than 60% of employees said they would likely get a COVID vaccine if their employer recommended it. In other words, it was almost kind of a trusted party or a, you know, a, a trusted source that they would turn to. And he thinks that employers will absolutely play a big role both in distributing this. Think about the resources they have, number one, the incentives they have, number two, and then their just ability to access and distribute to a lot of people. 
the question is still going to be whether there's just some hesitation that, that they can't overcome. Jenna McGregor covers workplace issues for The Post. We've heard a lot about how communities of color, especially Black people, are not ready to take a coronavirus vaccine. That's Lola Fidulu. She's been covering the rollout of the coronavirus vaccine for The Post. And she's been reporting on this hesitancy among Black people. People are very skeptical. So I've had those conversations with people in my congregation and in the larger community. And I was really kind of surprised at how much skepticism there there is in our community. I knew there would be some, but, uh, you know, there was a lot. Reverend Liz Walker is a pastor in Boston, and she knew that her congregation, which is mostly Black, would be suspicious of a coronavirus vaccine. But once she started having conversations with people, she realized that... People don't trust any of the systems around them. Uh, They feel betrayed. And so this notion of, of going and getting a vaccine was just one more system that has never proven its worth to me. That's what people were saying. And she decided to write Anthony Fauci... Dr. Fauci, to see if he would be willing to speak to her parishioners and answer whatever questions they had about how the vaccine was developed. Let's get together. Let's get together and get as much information as we can. I am not so sure that we have all the information that we need. And that was what prompted me to try to get Dr. Fauci. That's going to the horse's mouth, right? You're going to the man who has the information and has a reputation for being straight, at least in our community, and a straight shooter. He met with her parishioners and and other people in the community. Um, Over 2,800 people ended up signing up for the event. And answered questions about how the vaccine was developed and then encouraged the mostly Black group to get the vaccine once it's available. And and how did they respond to this whole, like, forum with, with Dr. Fauci? Like, did it change people's minds? So Reverend Walker said that she did a poll of her parishioners after the event and, and found that... 50, it was 50-50. 50% of the people who had had some, you know, a little doubt, a little skepticism felt that Dr. Fauci just confirmed for them that they should do this. They should have the, the vaccine. 50% were still skeptical. 50% of people still wanted more information and weren't ready to get the vaccine. They were unpersuaded. I think it just, it just speaks to the issue of you can't change people's minds with one conversation, mm. when you are trying to turn people around from decades of skepticism, from mm. decades of distrust, it's not going to happen overnight, no matter what the urgency. 
I'm wondering if there are any numbers that that show exactly what percentage of, of Black Americans have this level of skepticism around a coronavirus vaccine. So fewer than half of Black Americans say they would get the coronavirus vaccine, according to a December report from the uh, Pew Research Center. That's compared to 63% of Hispanic Americans and 61% of white Americans. And it's striking when you look at how the Black community has been affected. So why are we seeing this skepticism among Black people when they're thinking about this vaccine? There's been a lot of conversation about the Tuskegee study, which began in 1932. And that was a study in which federal officials conducted a secret experiment on Black men to study the progression of syphilis. The group of Black men was told that they would get treatment. And these federal health officials didn't provide the treatment but it's also important to note that there are inequities in the healthcare system right now that have led to many Black people mistrusting the medical establishment. You know, one example is the uh, maternal health crisis. Black women have uh, the highest maternal mortality rate in the United States. And I've also heard of studies about, you know, pain among patients and how Black people's pain is consistently underrated by doctors in comparison with white people, that their feelings of, of, of being ill are not listened to. Yeah. Something I heard um, on the ground is that a lot of people were concerned about the side effects. And if you have a group of people that already feel as if their concerns and pain isn't taken seriously, they're less inclined to get a vaccine or get treatment that may have side effects if they know, oh, well, maybe people won't believe me or help me. And one thing that's important to know is that it's not just that there is a group of Black people that say they wouldn't get the vaccine and there's a group that say they would. There's also a lot of diversity within the group that doesn't plan to get the vaccine. I spoke to Barrett Hatches, who uh, is a health leader on the ground in Chicago, and he told me that there is a group of people who do not plan to get the vaccine because they've never gotten vaccines. They don't get the flu vaccine um, and they're not going to get the coronavirus vaccine just because of the pandemic. There's also another group that has been reading and consuming a lot of misinformation around the vaccine. And so they don't plan to get it because, for example, they think Bill Gates is using the vaccine to inject people with microchips. And then there's this other group that has a wait-and-see approach. So the, so then how do medical professionals plan to kind of combat this feeling of, of skepticism and fear, especially among Black people in the U.S. about getting this vaccine? Like, how do they plan to communicate in a way that will put a lot of these people at ease? Well, Something I know that is happening on the ground in Chicago is providers at the Chicago Family Health Center, uh, which is a community health center that serves mostly Black and Latino people, they've been trying to have these conversations 
with their patients early, making sure that they're equipped with factual information about the vaccine and and how it has been developed and answering questions that people have, encouraging them to get the vaccine, letting them know that they plan to get the vaccine once it's deemed safe and effective and, and, and approved by the Food and Drug Administration. The medical professionals that will be most successful in persuading their Black patients to get the vaccine will be those who already have trusted relationships with the community. The Chicago Family Health Center has been in the community for over 40 years. The Black Coalition Against COVID-19, the D.C.-based group, has been conducting town halls during which some of the nation's top Black physicians and health leaders speak to the public and answer whatever questions they have about the vaccine process. Our job has been to try to get ahead of the curve, provide people with the information uh, that they need and can use to make the best possible decision for themselves and their family regarding vaccine acceptance uh, and participation in clinical trials. So Reed Tuxin founded the Black Coalition Against COVID-19. And something he tells people is that 2020 is different than 1932, uh, which is when the Tuskegee study began. There are research scientists uh, of color who are in positions of authority all across the research and medical care uh, enterprise. There are now Black leaders at the highest levels of government, including at the Food and Drug Administration, at the National Institutes of Health. On the institutional review boards that are reviewing the specific clinical trials in communities all around the country. So our point is that uh, we are not, as people of color, dependent upon uh, the opinions of others, but that we are in positions of authority and in positions where we can review the information uh, prior to decisions being made. I also think that a big part of this is just making sure that people understand just how much there is for Black people to gain by taking this vaccine. When you look at the fact that in so many places, Black people have gotten sick with COVID at higher rates, that they've died from COVID in higher rates, in many cases are more exposed to COVID in their communities, that there are real tangible benefits from being able to to, to take this vaccine and that they deserve to be protected at at the same rates, if not higher rates than than everybody else. And that's what I heard in my reporting. I heard over and over the argument that Black people could stand to gain the most from this vaccine. So on the one hand, it's important that many people get vaccinated, but but especially in, in the Black community um, where people have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. I spoke to a woman named Castina Jewel Watson, who lives in DC, and she plans to get the vaccine. And it's mostly because she lost her mother to COVID-19 in the spring. She just had coughing, she started having a fever, and she also started to have what I would call night terror. 
she saw up close the effect this illness has on people. And she told me that she would do whatever it would take to, I think the phrase she used was eradicate it from the planet. Yeah, I mean, seeing this thing up close and what it does to people, um, not only people who pass away of it, but you know, people like me who are just left here to deal with the ashes. Um, anything that I can do to try to eradicate it from, from the planet, I'm totally um, interested in doing. And for her, a vaccine, in addition to wearing a mask and social distancing, is one way to end this pandemic. Lola Fadulu covers health for The Post. Now, one more thing from style reporter Maura Jedkiss, an update on a story that we did on Post Reports on Halloween. Just before Halloween, there was this trend or craze, I don't know what you want to call it exactly. People became just absolutely enamored with this 12-foot skeleton from the Home Depot, and everyone wanted one, and they were putting them in their yards and coming up with these elaborate kind of spooky Halloween decorations. We decided that it would be like super awesome if we could have like an army of skeletons in my yard for Halloween. I feel like it's like something out of a movie that you would never see such a massive skeleton and then to be able to have one on your lawn. It's gigantic. Like you can, you, if you stand underneath of them, you're like literally under, like between their legs, like standing their hip bone above your head. As I was reporting this story, a lot of people were telling me like, I love this skeleton so much that I'm going to keep it up all year round. And then there was this very smooth transition to Thanksgiving skeletons, where people were decorating them like pilgrims or turkeys. People are sewing costumes for the skeletons. Like, there's a lot of creativity happening in the skeleton collecting world right now. We, I, I like literally went to Joan Fabrics and bought a sewing machine. Me and my 10-year-old daughter and her friend spent a couple of days making Santa hats for these giant skeletons that have like a 45-inch circumference head. So in reporting the Halloween story, I talked to Donna Kerr, who is a D.C. area realtor. She went a little bit viral here because she bought 10 skeletons. And then I recently saw that she put Santa hats on all of them. I'm just a sort of a skeleton lover. Like to me, they're just really funny and light and sort of almost whimsical. So I don't really associate them with death, even though that sounds stupid to hear myself say that just because obviously they're skeletons. When I put the hat on, I was just like, it looks so cute. I joined a Facebook group for owners of the 12-foot skeleton. It's called 12-foot skeleton Halloween club. And it's been very, very active after Halloween with people putting up pictures about how they've been using the skeleton to decorate for Christmas. 
just scrolling down here, I see um, one person took the head of the skeleton and put it on the top of their Christmas tree like an angel, just the head. Another person, let's see, they turned theirs into Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and it has antlers. Someone who lives in like a desert climate, um, they, they sewed a Santa suit for their skeleton, except it's wearing shorts and like um, a Hawaiian lei. People have left notes on our door. That way we love the skeletons with the Santa hat. It's such a heavy year with COVID, but I'm just trying to bring smiles to my own family and myself and my neighbors. They're so impressive and they're so tall and they bring people a lot of joy. And I think people want to be able to give that to other people during these crazy times. Yeah, I could see people leaving them up through spring or summer, decorating them maybe for Valentine's Day or St. Patrick's Day or Easter, uh, putting bunny ears on them, perhaps. You know, I don't, I don't want to be like the weird skeleton lady. <laughs> we'll probably have to take them down eventually. Um, but, you know, we'll see what happens. I think the skeletons in a way kind of represent like the absolute nihilism of 2020, the kind of like, LOL, nothing matters anymore sort of attitude that some people have, you know, used to get through the pandemic. But I think for people who have kept the skeleton up, you know, it's this reminder of like, the world is topsy-turvy right now. Nothing is normal. The holidays aren't going to be normal, especially given the trajectory of the pandemic right now. And so why not just lean all the way into that and make it super, super weird? <laughs> Maura Jedkis is a reporter for the Style Section. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We all have a lot of questions about the coronavirus vaccine. When will it be available? How do the vaccines actually work? How much will it cost? I just wanted to share a resource the Post has put together to try and answer some of these. A pretty comprehensive guide on what you need to know about the vaccines in development. We'll put a link to that in our show notes and on postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 